Death is a man in black, and he has gone insane, slaughtering the innocent. Only X, an amnesiac who wakes up to find his wife dead beside him, can stop him. Now, X, along with a band of heroes hunting the man in black, have to embark on a terrifying journey through the cursed town of Crofton, and into a haunted house filled with secrets, to find the only thing that can stop death. From, A, Kale, the number one best-selling author of Bad Dreams. Coffin X, a terrifying novel of dark fantasy and horror. Now available, on Amazon. You are listening to the Dark Fantastic Podcast. Welcome to this new episode of the Dark Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, AK, and my guest for this episode is an ex-Navy SEAL, a writer, and an occasional actor. He has worked on such cult classics as Sam Raimi's Darkman, Hard Target, Arlington Road, and is the author of several books and graphic novels, including The Thing from Another Planet, a terrific sequel to John Carpenter's The Thing. Now, a conversation with Chuck Forer. But I was so, uh, you know, happy to find you on social media because I've been a fan uh, for a very long time and I, I didn't even dare to try to find your contact info because I thought I probably would never reach you. Um, uh, well, I'm, I'm very glad you did. And uh, yeah, you know, even even uh, when I was very active, I, I was never really very much of a Hollywood person. You know, I just, uh, you know, I, I, I was, of course, I was a producer as well, and I've directed some things, but I, I mostly consider myself a writer and that, you know, writers are alone really so that's kind of the way i was you know but i'm very glad we have a chance to talk it's uh it's nice to make your acquaintance thank you very much for being here because your journey is a, is very unique in terms of what you did and uh, what you basically wanted to to become because i know you were studying uh, in medical school you were studying to be a psychiatrist when you basically sold your first screenplay uh, I think it was a screenplay about Ernest Hemingway uh, and his time in, uh, with the Crook Factory in, in Cuba. Right. So, so that's, uh, that's quite uh, like a strange turn of events because it, it isn't strange for a lot of people who wanted to be doctors to actually be uh, creative as well. You know, a lot of, a lot of writers are actually... Uh, practicing physicians or scientists or whatever so that's not really the unique part the unique part when I was reading about you is that I, I couldn't really tell whether you always wanted to be a writer but you were somewhat pressured into studying uh, psychiatry or, or, med or, or medicine or, or it's vice versa well, I, I will correct the record just just slightly. I uh, I, I sold uh, two screenplays while I was in the Navy, and uh, I got out of the Navy, and I had been admitted uh, to a, a school of osteopathic medicine in Missouri, and my my problem was that I had to pay for it, and uh, I I thought that I would try to write another screenplay to help pay for medical school, so. That that sort of distracted me, so I actually didn't attend. But you're you're right about one thing. I I always I always wanted to write. Uh, I I thought uh, I didn't know if I had a talent for it, but I always enjoyed it. And I did study clinical psychology uh, as an undergraduate, and actually I attended graduate school as well in clinical psychology. But I, I did that because I didn't think that I could uh, make a living with an English degree. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's sort of strange. I look back on it now. My wife uh, is, is a, was a very long time teacher of English and creative writing. And I've often said to her that I, if I could only have known in, in college that I would have actually become a writer, I, I always envy her, her education in English and literature and, 
And these are all the things I've had to learn on my own, which one of the greatest things about being a writer is learning to learn about things and researching things. And I think a lot of writers will tell you the best part of their job is, is learning and researching. So that, that was my, that was my journey. And it, it's a pretty odd one also. Yeah. And you mentioned that you always saw yourself as a writer, more, more, more a writer maybe than, than, than someone who wanted to work in, in the movie business. So who were your favorite writers uh, growing up? The ones who really, who really made you so passionate about books and writing? Well, I, I, I don't think that I really had anyone, anyone strange. I think a lot of young men are, are, uh, will read the same things that I read. I, I loved Herman Melville. I loved Joseph Conrad. I love Francis Marriott, who was a Royal Navy frigate captain in the late 1700s, who went on to become one of the greatest writers of the sea. Uh, I think like a lot of young men, I, I at first really enjoyed Ernest Hemingway. Um, I, I think the sort of writers that I always enjoyed were the ones that could make you forget that you were reading a book and uh, just make you see in your mind what, what they were writing about. And they did that so well that you, you forgot you're holding a book and you forgot you were reading. And what, what's interesting about that is, is when you write a screenplay, that's what you have to do. When someone reads your screenplay, they have to absolutely forget that they're reading a piece of paper. They have to see the movie in their eyes. And, you know, I've written a couple of novels. Uh, interestingly enough, both the novels that I've written uh, started first as screenplays, that I first wrote the screenplay, then I wrote the novel. Um, it's much more difficult to write a novel um, because you don't have the shorthand that, that uh, screenwriting um, the, the format of a screenplay. And when you're writing a screenplay, you're writing for some producer who's got a lot of money, who reads your screenplay, and he thinks, I have to make that movie. So, uh, you know, which is one of the reasons why you don't see writers on The Tonight Show, right? They know everyone likes to forget that Bruce Willis stars in this movie, but he didn't make it up. Right. Somebody somebody wrote the whole thing down and there's a director who will fly around to Khan and everyone completely forgets that somebody wrote that movie. Right. This is the contractor who got all the technical people together and brought it to the screen. No small task. But writers are uh, kind of the forgotten, the, the forgotten uh, cog in Hollywood, I think. Yeah. You know, I've. Uh... I, I did a lot of work in the film industry and I've been, you know, on both sides of the fence. And it's, uh, you're, you're definitely right be, because writers, maybe not, not as much now because, you know, with a lot of the, you know, of the strikes, the, the Reuters Guild, you know, did. And, uh, and I think the perception of, of actually what writers contribute to, to, to Hollywood basically has changed in, in, in the public consciousness a bit. So I think now maybe writers are held, uh, you know, with more esteem than, than before, uh, at least in the public eye, maybe not, you know, when it comes to the, I don't know what, the, what you call them, the, the money people, maybe they don't, they don't really appreciate the contributions of the writer. But at the same time, uh, the, the, you know the movie is because you know you, you, you've, you've, you've definitely worked in the film industry I'm sure much much more than, than I did but also it's a bit hard to, to, to you know the, the idea of the auteur and, and uh, uh, the, the auteur director and the writer it's, it's a bit hard sometimes to, to, to give credit where credit is due but, 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 but you're right at the most basic level 
basically the script is everything uh, you can build on a script but you cannot just you cannot just do a movie without a script so i think it boils down to that at, at its most basic level writers are still uh, underappreciated maybe not in the, on the tv side of things because now tv is like basically is it's totally a writers medium now and, you know with netflix and streaming and and uh, you know shows like uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, and so you know, the, 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 with the superstar showrunner now, I think say, things have changed in television and movies. I don't think, I don't think they have uh, that much, really. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you that that, and it's just in the last ten years or so, and and you've you're you're absolutely right. The you know the the showrunners now are are the are the eight hundred pound gorillas, and I, I'm I'm really glad to see that. You know, and I've only worked a little uh, in television, and uh, you know, done a lot of uh, developed a lot of things that didn't happen, which is what many writers, you know, or as you know in Hollywood, you have a list of credits, but that that's usually about, I'm sure you'd agree, that's about 10% of the things you've done because you work on a lot of things that don't happen. But, uh, you know, I was mostly a feature writer and you're right. In television, things are different. In feature film, it's very easy for the director, the auteur, and the, and the star to, uh, uh, you know, to to become associated with the project and the writer is pretty much... Uh, forgotten but you know when i when i came to hollywood uh you know i had been a naval officer i i didn't think i was going to stay in hollywood very long i think for my first couple of screenplays i i really thought look i'm going to save some money and then i'm going to go back uh to medical school i'm going to i'm going to go to medical school and uh it was only very slowly that i realized look i've got a couple of films in development and uh you know, sort of before I knew it, I'd, I'd done seven movies. But, I, you know, I, I, I always considered myself, I was a kind of person who just sort of washed up in Hollywood. I'd never planned to do it. Uh, I'd actually gone to university and graduate school in Los Angeles. So I, I sort of knew what LA was all about. Um, I lived in California much of my life. Um, I, but I never... Like I say, I never look. I never went to parties. I never really associated with a lot of Hollywood stars. Of course, I worked with uh, some big names on my movies, and uh, you know, knew them and and hung out with them when we were shooting a film. But it just was never my thing. And uh, I, it was. I look at it as sort of a weird part of my life. But uh, again, I. You know, I consider myself a writer uh, for all the good and bad of Hollywood. I don't think I'd trade it. Uh, it was a great experience. And uh, I look at I look at writing as something that that humbles me every day. It, uh, I'm one of those writers that think uh, no matter how good you are, you will never completely master the craft. And there's always so much to learn, so much to read. And uh, there's the example of so many good writers. And uh, this is something you should always try to improve that. And it keeps me humble. Speaking of, you know, uh, working with superstars and auteurs, uh, I know you did some uncredited work on uh, Sudden Impact, the, the fourth uh, Dirty Harry movie. That is the weirdest thing in the world because uh, that, that has gotten into my Wikipedia somehow. I never worked on that film. <laughs> it, I, I, I've, I've literally tried to take that down off Wikipedia and whoever put it on there just keeps putting it back on. So mm -hmm. I, I think, I think one of the things that probably was the issue there is that uh, I, I was working with Charlie Sheen on Navy SEALs during that period. And I, I guess somehow you know, maybe Charlie said it or, or something, but that, that's one of those weird, you know, th 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 there's the machine in Hollywood and it says a lot about the machine in Wikipedia as well, you know? So 
if you see yeah. that, folks, and you want to visit my Wikipedia page, and uh, go ahead and take it off and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I actually didn't get that from uh, from. Uh, I don't think I got it from Wikipedia. I think I got it from an interview, a written interview with you, and that was in the introduction to the uh, to the article that you did this and that, and and I and I could never find you actually saying anything about that project. So that's why I was so excited to actually get to, to talk to you because there is nothing on record of you saying anything about working yeah. with Clint Eastwood. And I thought, wow, that I'm sure it, it would have been a big deal, you know, to you oh, if you would have worked with Eastwood. So that's oh, why I, I wanted to ask that question. <laughs> It's a good question. Look, I would have loved to work with, you know, Mr. Eastwood. I just, I think he's terrific. And, uh, you know, in the course of my life and my boyhood, he went from sort of being an, uh, a small part in TV Westerns to being a really important director and writer. And uh, his body of work in Hollywood is, is tremendous. Look, I, I, would have, I would have absolutely loved it. But uh, it didn't happen. So. <laughs> yeah. But I thought it, it would be interesting to know, you know, just considering what, what you usually write, uh, I wanted to know what you added to that movie, because that movie is one of the weirdest, uh, dirty, hairy movies, you know, out of the bunch. So yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I didn't know what to make of it either. But uh, anyway, I would, I would see a Clint Eastwood movie any day of the week. And uh, <laughs> I just think he's amazing. Yeah, and speaking of, you know, someone, you said you admire Clint Eastwood, and uh, I usually don't like to get, you know, into politics because I despise politics, you know, always, always have. But I, what, what I admire about Clint Eastwood is that, you know, considering his body of work, you, he covers a lot of, of things that might be controversial. He sometimes takes certain positions that you wouldn't really, you can't really put your finger on it, whether he's on the right or the left or whatever these distinctions actually mean. But that's, that's one of the things I always admired about him, you know, this kind of individualist, uh, free thinking type of, of, of filmmaking that he usually involves himself in. And I'm I'm talking about that because I think the same applies to you because your background is very interesting coming from, you know, a Navy SEAL background, a military background, and your writing is always nuanced to a very large degree when it comes to these things, you know, like your novel Killing Che, which is a wonderful book, and uh, your movie Navy SEALs, I don't know exactly how much you are satisfied with the final product with with navy seals not at all (laughs) (laughs) yeah i guessed as much (laughs) yeah that hurt actually (laughs) yeah so in general i think when 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 i that's that's one of the things i always liked about your work and and people you know who think like you in terms of the work of course and i'm not talking personally in terms of what they write or what they produce, is that their work is authentic, but not necessarily ideological. It, it, people almost don't want to say this in Hollywood, but the politics are, are literally the third rail. And if you are discerned as being someone, let, let's just say like Mr. Eastwood, who, who I admire, and I admire his you know, the, the, the positions he is able to take. And I, I like it for the same reason that you, you said, that they are ambiguous, but you, you, you see in them this, this connecting whole. You know, he, he talks about uh, lone heroes and, and what the nuances of, of what's the difference between justice and the law. And, and what, what it is to be a one person standing apart from a larger whole. I mean, that's, that's something that goes completely through his, his work. And, you know, I, I never, I, I'm like you, I, I always sort of try to avoid politics for, for a bunch of reasons, because everyone's input into politics are essentially opinion and no one ever convinces anyone else to change their opinion in politics. So I always simply just thought to avoid it 
and 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 I did. I I I hope, but I, I wanted to write about some of those those same themes. And one of the problems in writing uh, in feature film is that there's a certain point at which the writer hands the project off to a director who we all know becomes the auteur of the project. So, uh, for example, the, the movie Red Planet, and we, we talked about Navy Seals and how it didn't quite come out maybe the way I'd like it. I, I, I bet you were probably surprised that the screenwriter of Navy Seals wrote uh, a, a sort of interesting book on Che Guevara, right? And I, you might have wondered, well, what happened to the movie Navy Seals if this guy could write a book on Che Guevara? Well, here are the sort of things that go on. The, the, the screenplay for the movie Red Planet was initially called Alone. And it was the story of one astronaut who crashed on Earth, on, on Mars. And there was only one survivor in the command module orbiting the planet. And this one crashed astronaut could only speak to the female who was commanding the, the command model. He could only talk to her when she passed overhead once a day. And he had to get, as Val Kilmer did in Red Planet, he had to get from his crash site uh, to a Russian landing module and try to get that landing module back up into space. Okay. The auteur took that movie over and decided that he wasn't going to call the movie alone anymore. He was going to call it Red Planet and add seven people to it. And I just thought, look, that that isn't what this movie's all about. It doesn't tell the story I want to tell. Anyway, so Red Planet came out. Well, maybe 10 years later, somebody comes out with a movie called The Martian, and it tells the pretty much the exact story that Alone tried to tell. One guy on a planet all by himself up to his own devices to get himself safely home. So when you're a writer, a writer of feature film, you often see this. You, you, you write a screenplay and they pay you a terrific amount of money for the screenplay. And then sometimes they don't just throw the baby out with a bath, bath water. They... <laughs> They throw the whole thing over a cliff and there isn't really anything you can do. You, you just can't. You, you just think, well, the next time I'll just write a better one. And it's, it's, that's, the, that's the biggest frustration, I think, in writing feature film a lot of times. And some other times you get a great experience and you work together with a director and things go well. I guess things went well with the, with the, like, the Sam Raimi phase of your career. But before I jump to that, uh, I want to go back a little bit to Navy SEALs. What about the movie that you personally didn't like, you know, the final product? Well, we had uh, uh, initially, uh, we had Richard Marquand uh, assigned to direct it. And he had just come off the second Star Wars film. And he, he was... Uh, he was a steady and amazing director who had a terrific vision for the film. And uh, we were in pre-production. And unfortunately, Mr. Marquand unexpectedly passed away. He had a stroke in Hong Kong and we were back to, to phase to step one. Uh, the studio went ahead with another director who... Um, It, it was it was very difficult to see the direction that he was trying to take the movie. Um, I, I was kind of thrown into the mix there. Not it isn't very often that writers uh, are on the set. Um, I've, I've been pretty lucky in my career in that most of the movies I've made, I've I've had a hand in producing them, uh, and I've I've been on the set. Um, in the course of Navy SEALs, uh, I had seven of my SEAL friends. We uh, went to Spain and uh, the East Coast of the United States to make the movie. 
And the seven Navy SEALs that I had with me, we did all the stunts in the movie. Uh, we were technical advisors on the film. And there, there was a point at which the director lost control of the cast. Um, people, people, the actors became pretty dissatisfied with the sort of choices the director was making. He, he seemed to always go for the most obvious thing. Uh, he, he, he had an idea that somehow uh, Charlie Sheen should be the young, reckless character who nobody can trust. Uh, and he has to earn his way onto the team. And as often as I tried to tell him that, look, we, we don't have people like this in the SEAL teams. It, it doesn't happen. You don't come in as this young, reckless, dangerous operator because it, instead of thinking us as a bunch of uh, uh, gorillas with machine guns, these people tend to be the best and the brightest individuals in the, in the military. These are very intelligent people who, who understand that what they do is the surgical application of violence. We, we don't have crazy people. They, they don't last. They don't make it through training. And if somehow they do, they're kicked out. These are extremely professional, reliable uh, people who, who are ordinary people with ordinary problems, but they do superhuman things. And I kept trying to say, look, that's the story here. That's the story. But the movie didn't come out like that at all. Uh, what success it had was simply because the, the subject matter was completely new. Uh, in that day, no one really knew what the SEAL teams were. Nobody, there'd never been a movie made about them. There'd never even been a book written about them. And, uh, you know, that, that was my first big mouthful of Hollywood. And, uh, you know, it was, it, it, it was kind of tough to see that, you know, that's the way you could work so hard on a project and try to make it as good as you possibly could. And it comes out like that. And I, I might've gotten out of the business actually a after that, but at the same time that I was watching Navy SEALs do what it was going to do, I had the wonderful, wonderful opportunity to work with Sam Raimi, who, as you know, a story director in Hollywood, a creative genius, and one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to work with. And, you know, Sam and I were able to work on three movies together. I went from dealing with a director who was jealous of better ideas uh, who would almost go out of his way to do what he thought, especially if someone had a better suggestion, to someone like Sam, who is always willing to listen to whatever's best, always. And I didn't get, always get my way with Sam, but you know what? The movie always came out very well. And working with him was, was one of the best experiences of my life. So th that's sort of like the top and the bottom of <laughs> what you're going to deal with as a feature film writer. And again, if you're, you know, if you're a showrunner, if you're showrunner on a on an ongoing television series, you are the 800 pound gorilla, right? It's not the director; it's you. Uh, because of, uh, I've always been a big fan of Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi's work uh, since I was a kid, basically, and through his movies, even even maybe as a teenager, I began to notice your name, you know, in, in the credits. And some of the of, of my favorite movies at the time, and some of them are still my favorites to this day. So that's how I actually came to, you know, associate, uh, to, to take notice of your name and to associate it with quality, basically, you know, because I think, I think the idea of being a fan of someone now, you know, the idea of fandom and fanboys and fangirls and all these terms don't mean much really, uh, but to me, at least, the idea of being a fan of someone basically means that you trust that, you know, person. When you see the name of that person in the credits or, you know, above the title, like, you know, John Carpenter's whatever, or written by, uh, you know, so someone, 
you're familiar with and you repeat you repeatedly you know watch one movie or come across one movie after another that you begin to notice that that person actually means quality you can trust anything that's associated with that person which is of course a bit tricky in hollywood i know because sometimes the director or the writer that you are a fan of doesn't really have control over the product but in your case with the exception of navy seals which is a movie i'm not really i'm not really that you know interested in that genre in general and i wasn't really that fond of it all the other movies that had your name on them even virus which is a very flawed movie i also found entertaining but that's how i came to know your work and to to actually later on get to move on to your 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 writing you know in terms of the of the novels and the comic books but uh, that period with you working with sam remy was was really like a golden period and from what you're saying i guess that's why the the, the movies that came out out of that collaboration were that good because the, you were you were sympathetical, I think, uh, to, to some degree. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And uh, Sam had Sam had come to Hollywood uh, after Evil Dead, and uh, I, I do think it, think of it as a golden time because uh, I, Navy SEALs was in in pre production, and Sam was uh, scrabbling around town trying to get Darkman set up. And uh, I was very, very lucky that uh, Sam had read an earlier draft of Navy SEALs and, and really liked it. And uh, we had lunch and uh, with his production partner, uh, Rob Tapper. And it was the start of a really, really good friendship. And uh, Sam wasn't Sam yet. And uh, we were we were taking meetings and trying to get this thing set up, and uh, it finally landed at Universal. And uh, you know, of course, the script goes back and forth, and what everyone calls development hell. But uh, I, I, you know, I, I remember all the headaches and the frustration and the uh, you know and the tension and the high wire mark, high wire act of going going to an important pitch meeting and uh, pitching this. And uh, it seems completely strange then. And, uh, you know, and then we're sitting there, I'm sitting with Sam at Universal and we're casting and in walks this unknown actor named Liam Neeson. And Liam wasn't Liam then. He was just this Irish guy looking for work in, in uh, you know, in Hollywood. And in, walk, in walks Francis McDormand. And she was uh, the wife of uh, a friend of Sam's, and you know we thought she was right for it. And it it was that long ago. It 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 was in a uh, in a galaxy far far away, but it was a wonderful wonderful time. And if you can work with someone like that, then you're 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 really really lucky in your life. And Sam's just a great guy, He's still a great friend, and you know I wish him all the best. So what were was your relationship working relationship like because you you did Darkman with him and you also uh, contributed to the writing and uh, and the acting in uh, in, uh, in Hard Target which he produced uh, through his company uh, what you said three projects what was the third project uh, let let's see uh, let's see we did Darkman Hard Target. Uh... Good Lord. That's pretty bad when you can't remember all your movies. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? I developed uh, a couple of episodes of uh, Dark Man as a television series. I work with that uh, on yeah. with Sam. And I think that there were other development projects we worked on and went out and pitched and campaigned with, but we, we never got going. And, uh, you know, it was just, uh, we, we were just such old friends, you know, it was, we all pile into somebody's car and go over there and pitch this. And the interesting thing uh, about Sam was, you know, he was never into the Hollywood BS either. You know, he just, he never played the famous director. He was just this modest guy who did great work. He was, so I, I, I think that was something that we, you know, that we connected on because, 
neither of us really thought much about that sort of the trappings of fame, you know, not that there's any such thing as a famous screenwriter because there isn't. <laughs> okay. That's just, yeah. If you want to be famous in Hollywood, it look, it does. Like I said, I've done seven films. It, it, it doesn't make you famous. You're, you're never going to be a famous feature film writer. Right. So, but it just, it, it's just so terrific to work with Sam and, uh, and Rob too, because his partner was a, you know, great guy. And another guy, not, you know, there, you, you know, what a Hollywood producer acts like. And uh, that wasn't Rob. He, he wasn't like that. He was quiet. He was competent. He got stuff done and a great guy to work with. I just want to move ahead a bit to, to one of my favorite uh, projects of yours, which is the thing from another planet, the the comic book that you wrote as a direct sequel to John Carpenter's The Thing. And uh, I just love that uh, graphic novel. I love it so much. And I'm not a huge comic book guy. I read comic books, you know, I'm just a casual fan. But that that, uh, that book came to my attention actually uh, when I was, I think, watching... Uh, a panel or something, uh, Q&A with uh, John Carpenter. And they were talking about uh, if, he, if he would ever think about doing a sequel to The Thing, because, you know, because of the ending. The ending of The Thing is, is very bleak and it's, uh, it's very ambiguous. So he mentioned in that Q&A that the, the best sequel idea to The Thing had already been written uh, and it was uh, in the form of a, a graphic novel called The Thing from Another Planet. And he said that if he ever uh, made a sequel, he would actually use the, the, the ideas uh, and, and how that book actually overcame, you know, the way uh, they painted themselves into a corner a bit with the ending of The Thing. So he basically considers it canon and he basically considers your book, The Thing from Another planet as as like the official sequel so how did you come uh you know on board that project and were you a fan of the original film oh i i was a i i was a student of the original film i it it to me was was one of the one of the best uh science fiction films of all time right right up there with the original alien which, by the way, it proceeded by a couple of years. Um, you know, I, I was really surprised and delighted to hear that John thought so well of it. Um, what 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 happened was uh, Mike Richardson, who would later uh, do some pretty good work, for example, The Mask uh, and, and a whole string of other movies. Uh, we ran into each other a couple times uh, in Hollywood and Mike uh, was looking to develop a sequel uh, to the thing. And Mike and I got together and this was sort of at the, at the kind of the dawn of the, of the graphic novel uh, period. And as you pointed out about writers now and showrunners, it, it, it's always sort of been in, in graphic novels that the, the writer is tended to be called the creator and you, you sort of get more Jack as it were for doing this. And Mike asked me if I'd, I'd put together a graphic novel uh, that dealt with the sequel to, to the thing. And I said, God, I, I'd love to. And I went home and, and gave it some thought and uh, uh, studied the film again and uh, looked at whatever threads were remaining and, uh, and, and put together the, the graphic novel, which was, as you know, it picked it up pretty much like, I don't know, four or five hours after the end of the movie. Um, I, you know, I, I, I said that I wasn't really uh, a fame chaser <laughs> during my career. Uh, the graphic novel had a really good reception. And uh, Mike said, look, why don't you come down to Comic-Con in San Diego and talk about the, 
talk about the graphic novel. And I was really busy working on something else. And I, I you know, I said, look, I, I can't make it. Uh, but apparently Harm, uh, Harmon Ellison, Harlan Ellison was there on a panel. And uh, I'm very flattered to say that he went on and on about how much he loved the the graphic novel and how he saw this was the, you know, that the, this this was a merging of sort of a, a good screenplay and a good sequel. And I think one of the reasons that happened is if you write a good graphic novel, it's almost like the storyboard for the film coming alive. And, uh, you know, th that was... I did hear later that, uh, you know, John Carpenter really liked it. And uh, we did try to, we did try to get it going in, in, in Hollywood, but uh, uh, I, I think universal, uh, they kind of, I don't know why uh, they, they didn't, they didn't really rise to the occasion. Uh, I didn't even uh, get a chance to adapt it as a screenplay, but uh the movie that you would have gotten if you if, if you read those graphic novels, that's the movie you would have gotten. And it was one of those missed opportunities because I just would have been as as delighted as possible to work with uh, John because uh, I mean he is he's one of the greats. He's one of the greats. Yeah, for, for, I think for the fans because I think it came out in '91. I really wanted to highlight, you know, on the, on this episode of the show, I wanted to highlight uh, this graphic novel because for fans of the movie, I think it's it's just it's uh, it's written with with lots of you know attention to detail and again as Carpenter mentioned, it it's like the the, the most the cleverest basically progression after how that movie ended. And I think fans need to rediscover it now because it's it's readily available everywhere. It came out in many many editions, and uh, and it also showcases uh, your style of writing, which is uh, a bit minimalist. You know, you do you just it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's very it's very you know clear eyed to the point. Uh, maybe maybe you would even call it hard boiled. You know, it's just it's it's, it's story, it's dialogue, just very very you know precise so uh, even as an introduction to your work i think it's it's great well thank thank you and it's when you know when you're writing a graphic novel a, a certain sort of graphic novel uh, science fiction like that you don't get a lot of uh, exposition in the dialogue and uh, it 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 does have to be sort of hard boiled and extremely I guess the word is concentrated, but I'm, I'm, I'm very flattered that you liked it. And, uh, uh, you know, I, again, it's, it's, it's one of those things you, um, I, one of the things I find about writing is you, you can't do it to be famous. And it's, it's not very often that a writer gets to hear from, the readers, the consumers, that they really like, you know, that that they really like your work because reading is a very private thing. And even reading a graphic novel, it's a very private thing. It's, you know, it's not done in a theater with 600 other people. You know, it's done in the privacy of, of one's home or even uh, sitting on the subway or wherever you are. But I, I love to take people on that journey. I love to take people uh, through a story and 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 make them feel things and and hopefully at the end you make them see things a little differently. That's that to me is is that's the process to me. That's my profession and uh, it's 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 what I love to do and I've been lucky enough to to get to do it. So uh, and and like I say, the the craft keeps me humble. It 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 keeps me humble. And uh, after that, a couple of years after that, you wrote uh, The Jackal, a remake of, uh, of The Jackal, starring Bruce Willis, uh, Richard Gere, and the amazing uh, Sidney Poitier, uh, one of my all-time favorite actors. 
So were you involved in, in, in the production of that movie? And did you and do you have any great stories of 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 working with uh, with these actors? Well, I, I can tell you one thing that I have never met a more elegant, friendly, approachable gentleman than Sidney Portier. And I don't even want to call him a movie star of the old school because he is just, he, he's in, an, in a league of his own. He is an amazing person. I, I was on the set uh, in Richmond. Uh, I just got there. Uh, he actually, a lot of times you'd get a, a PA coming over to you and saying, Bruce Willis wants to see you in his trailer in five minutes. Okay, that's Bruce Willis. He's a he's a big movie star. Then you can have this tall, elegant gentleman walk over to you, stick out his hand and say, you must be Chuck Farr, the writer. I'm so glad to meet you. I'm Sidney Poitier. And of course, I was just with my mouth hanging open. Uh, another thing I'll say that Sidney Poitier in The Jackal did all of his own stunts. I mean, what what a guy, and and what a guy, and to uh, you know, when as as the as the screenplay went through uh, development, and we go into casting, and uh, I I can't remember who we got first, if it was Richard Gere or Bruce Willis, but I do remember that when Sidney Poitier said he would take on the role of the FBI agent, I was just I thought okay, the this film's going to be, it's going to do okay. And Michael Caton Jones, who uh, had directed Memphis Bell, he came on. It was terrific to work with Michael as well. Uh, a really, a really great guy. I, I've almost found that the more talented people are in Hollywood, the more truly talented they are, a lot of them can be uh, pretty decent people. Many of them aren't. There, there are there are a chosen few, and and uh, Mr. Portier is definitely one of them. Just an amazing person. Yeah, that must have been amazing, uh, you know, because I can't even imagine, you know, meeting uh, meeting uh, Sidney Portier because even as a kid, when I I think I I first saw him, I think it was to serve with love on on TV or something. And I understood at that moment, I think I was 10, 11 or something. And I understood that that's what a movie star is. Because before that, and after that, I mean, when I, when I got into film, when I really got into film and, and the study of cinema, and I got to interact a bit with people who worked in, in the industry and in different parts of the world, not just Hollywood, they would say so and so is a movie star, so and so is a movie star, and maybe they would mention someone like Warren Beatty or someone like I don't know Bruce Willis, as as you mentioned, and they are you know they are creative people, and of course they they contributed uh, you know to a lot to making a lot of entertaining movies and some great movies, but just. To me, since I was a kid, like the standard was Sidney Poitier, you know, the, the way he, the diversity of, of, of the roles he, he did and uh, the way he, he, you know, blocked the scenes and everything about him, you know, I, because I, I watched his movies religiously. I'm amazed that you actually uh, got to meet him and, and work with him. And uh, I was dying to ask you that question. <laughs> well, just just an amazing guy and it's it's funny I, I i am like you i just consider lilies of the field to just have been just an amazing movie just amazing and th there's such a dignity about him uh gravitas without being grave and uh you know that the, that's that's the magic you know, you, you can write 
you can write a great speech and you can write a monologue as a writer, but it, it takes someone like him to, to bring that, uh, to make that sing, to make it resonate in people because uh, no one's going to listen to the writer say those words. They, they won't mean anything, but you, you put them in the mouth of a character that, that Sidney Poitier brings to the screen and wow. And to me that, you know, the, the jackal was about, it was about Sidney Poitier. It was about Sidney Poitier trying to get the bottom of, of this assassination attempt. And everything else to me as a writer spun around uh, Sidney's character. And um, I, 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 it was one of the luckiest experiences of my life. I mean, uh, it was an honor to work with him and see him at work every day and, and talk to him and have lunch with him and uh, just, just an amazing person. And I'll never, I'll never forget that. I don't want to take too much of your time. I just have uh, two very short questions. You did some uncredited work on Arlington Road, right? Oh, I did. There's an interesting thing. I, I, I completely rewrote the movie. Um, a page one rewrite. Uh, at the same time, I, I, I had just finished. Well, the Jackal had wrapped up. And uh, Universal Studios, for whatever reason, was trying to reduce my writing credit on the Jackal. And uh, screenplays often go through arbitration, as you know, because the, the studios will often hire more than one writer. And it's up to the Writers Guild to determine the credits, which are, which are very important, not just creatively, but uh, financially for a writer as well. And I had done a complete rewrite on Arlington Road, and uh, I didn't want to put another writer through the arbitration hell that I was going through on uh, on the jackal so i didn't i didn't even write a credit statement i didn't i didn't go to arbitrate the credit so uh but i was extremely happy that it's funny i'm not credited on arlington road but when i watch the movie i see my screenplay they they the screenplay that they shot was the one that i handed into them so that's how weird Hollywood is, right? You, you don't get credit on a movie that you wrote every word on and you have to fight for credit. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. you don't, sometimes you don't get credit and sometimes they try to take away your credit. It was just a very odd thing. But I was very happy with the way that movie came out and Tim Robbins, of course, made it. Uh, you know, I, I had a chance to be able to delve into a lot of politics there because you could put it in the mouth of a villain and you could you could make people think and one of the things i did like about it is to is to try to make tim robbins character i tried to make people sort of somehow see that the stuff he was putting forward was seductive but it wasn't right you you almost saw what he thought was right but it isn't right but you saw him sort of try to persuade people. Um, uh, anyway, that it was a that was a good movie. That uh, I don't want to say that all because of me. I didn't come up with the idea. I just rewrote the screenplay. So, but that was a film I was very happy with. Yeah, I'm actually a big fan of uh, of Mark Pellington, the the director, and uh, hopefully I'm gonna have him on the show uh, soon. And um, no, Pell and I said hello. We we never we never crossed paths, but uh, I was very happy that he he you know that uh, he liked the rewrite and uh, tell him hello for me. Yeah, definitely. You you never met him? No, you know I'm sure we I'm sure we talked on the phone. It's uh, you know here's another interesting thing. Uh, there's a certain point in Hollywood and everyone's career when you move out of town, right? It takes a certain amount of daring to for your agent to say, "Well, Chuck's not in town." Uh, about midway through my career in Hollywood, I, I moved to Florida because I just sort of had enough with Los Angeles. 
And uh, like everyone who's ever lived in LA, and like I said, I went to university and graduate school there. You know, I, I love and hate LA. Uh, but that was the point right about that time that I worked on uh, Arlington Road, I had moved out. And uh, it's one of the things that kind of does something good for your career, actually, because people think, wow, well, he's so successfully doesn't want to live here anymore. <laughs> but uh, but tell Mark I said hi. And uh, I, you know, I'm sure he'll remember we did talk a number of times on the phone. So, yeah, hopefully he'll be on in a couple of weeks. Uh, he, he seems like a very, very nice guy. And uh, I never met him, of course. And I'm just a huge fan uh, of his work. And uh, and uh, I'm glad I got a chance to ask you about Arlington Road because that script, that story is, is just, uh, it's, you know, I, I can't even imagine uh, how you would go about writing something like that because, the, 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 you know, it's like an existential kind of 70s thriller, you know, with, a, with it's, 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 it's unique somewhat. It's one of the better, uh, you know, paranoid thrillers that came out of that time, because that time everything was about, you know, the the end of the world and Y2K and all that nonsense. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Arlington Road actually, you know, went into a completely different kind of, of, of genre with, with the paranoid thriller of the 70s. And it could and it, it could have gone wrong because the, the, the yeah. thing is, you know, just just a touch here or there it would have gone over the top but i think as you mentioned i think the uh, i think uh, because because i think of you you you're not a hollywood person and you have um such a genuine uh, life experience you know and you know what you're talking about when you mention some of these you know uh, terroristic aspects of life you know someone who comes from a military background so i think that grounded the movie a bit because if someone else had written it because you, because i think you know what i'm talking about the problem with hollywood when it deals with these types of situations or stories usually they are written by people of a certain political persuasion and who don't really know what they're talking about yeah. so it comes off as some some kind of rant or, or unbelievable or or the actors run away with the movie, uh, maybe like they did in Navy Seals. So I think no, now it makes sense why that movie was was a bit grounded because I think, I didn't know you did a page one rewrite. I thought you, you just did some, you know, tuning of, of the script. So it makes sense now why that movie was the way it was. In terms of writing, of course, I know Mark uh, Mark's style is, has a lot to do with it, but the writing also has a lot to do with it. You know, I, it's funny. So Mark and I never worked shoulder to shoulder, but he's exactly the kind of director that I would jump at the chance to work with again. Uh, because it, the, as the rewrite went in, uh, I, I, he had an idea of where he wanted it to go to begin with. And, and, and when we talked, we talked about what, you know, uh, how, how uh, Tim's role had to be seductive and how you had to see that he, that uh, Tim either really believed the things he was telling people or he didn't at all. He was just, a, was, was he someone who considered himself to be a patriot or was he just a, a, a psychopathic nihilist? And, and that was territory that I loved to cover. I, I, I just loved it. So, you know, you, you can work extremely close with a director. In fact, Arlington Road was one of the only pictures that I ever did that I wasn't on the set for, that I didn't, you know, I didn't go to, I didn't, I didn't work on the movie, but, uh, uh, and again, you know, I don't have credit for it, but I, I was very, I was very proud of the work and, uh, and delighted that Mark did, God, such a wonderful job. I don't mind calling him the auteur at all. He delivered a, a splendid movie and you're right. In other hands, it would have been terrible. It would have been television. Yeah, it had this, uh, you know, I don't know. I think it's probably a combination of your writing and his uh, and the way he tells stories but it had this 
you know, touch of not dark humor, but it had a touch of like dark energy to it. You know, with the idea of the Boy Scouts and how the, the, the terrorists are basically recruited as kids through this kind of, you know, Boy Scout thing. And uh, there is this aspect of it that's just, again, I don't want to say it's darkly humorous, but there's a dark energy to it, a wit, a dark wit to it, I, I guess. Was that intentional on your part uh, a bit? Oh, I, I, absolutely. I wanted to, you know, when you... The great a great way to get audience uh, in into the project and and on the edge of their seat is if you're watching an ice skater that that's one thing and you watch their technical perfection as they do their their moves and jumps but if you watch that skater skate close to the thin the thinnest of the ice close to the edge of the pond you're going to you won't be impressed anymore. You're going to be biting your nails. And I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to push it as far as I could into this, into the edge, to the edge. And, uh, and again, you know, in terms of the director of Navy SEALs, I, I, unfortunately, I worked with a very unimaginative, egocentric, uh, uh, very pedestrian guy. And then I, I got to work with Sam and, uh, and, and then in the situation with Mark, I mean, I, some, some people do wonderful things and some people don't. It's, it's hard when you work so hard on a screenplay, you, you don't really know how it's going to be. And again, this is a feature film and I think that's a unique animal with unique problems. Yeah. Um... I know we are running a bit over time, so I just uh, want to ask you uh, about what you're working on now. Uh, well, I've been uh, I've been uh, working on a couple of things. I think uh, one of them is kind of uh, uh, well. I'll go I'll go back a little bit. I uh, one of the things I was uh, I was happy to have uh, written a while back was a. Uh, it's called Philip Nolan, The Man Without a Country. And it was essentially uh, expanding the very famous short story uh, written by Edward Everett Hale uh, of uh, The Man Without a Country. It was a story of a man who uh, early in the Republic of the United States became associated with one of America's greatest traitors, a man named Aaron Burr. And uh, because, of, because of his association uh, he was condemned in secret and exiled from the United States, the hero of the story, Philip Nolan. And he was kept on a series of American ships. And his sentence in his court-martial, uh, Philip Nolan said, I never, goddamn the United States, I never want to hear those two words again as long as I live. And they court-martialed him and said, you'll never hear those two words again. And they put him on a series of Navy ships and no one could ever talk to him of home again. And I wrote a uh, almost a master and commander uh, story of a expanding on the short story and telling the story of Mr. Nolan's life and death in exile. And uh, I'm beginning to write another uh, another novel dealing with Philip Nolan, uh, telling his story of his worldwide exile and the things that happened to him. And I love the idea of doing that because in the age of Guantanamo Bay, this was 200 years ago. And it talks about uh, what is patriotism, what is love of country, and what, what sort of things does your country have the power to do over you? And that, that always interests me. One man against, against a nation. That's interesting to me. Yeah, you must love the films of Frank Capra then. Oh, I do. I do. <laughs> Those, you know, that's what I say. What what keeps me humble? I, I can't hold a candle to that. But I can try. And I, I like the fight. I, I like the fight. And, and it never, it, it always amazes me that there was a point in, in Mr. Capra's career where they called his work Capricorn, right? They... People didn't take it seriously. And 
I would just say that his work has aged pretty well. It's aged pretty well. And there is a real auteur to me as a person who wrote the screenplay and then showed up on the set every day to marshal the resources and all the literally hundreds of talented people that it takes to make a movie. And, uh, you know, uh, you always see movie stars sitting on the couch of the tonight show saying it's such a crazy business, but making a movie, as you know, it's, it's at least 12 hours a day, six days a week. And it is tough. As you know, Ahmed, it's, it's hard work. Just being able to, to reach out to you and to talk to you, uh, it means it means so much to me that you actually took the time to to come on the show and to give me this opportunity to to talk to you. Ahmed, it was my pleasure. And uh, listen, let let's talk again because it was it was really wonderful to share views with you. And uh, this is obviously something you love and you know a great deal about. And uh, it was just wonderful to talk to you. And uh, I'm happy to come on whenever you'd like me. In the darkest hour. There's a light that shines on every human being. But one. From director Sam Raimi. Dark Man. Thanks for listening and please join me again for another episode of The Dark Fantastic Podcast. Ahmed Khalifa is a filmmaker and novelist. He is the writer-director of several short films and a feature, released on Netflix, and the author of a number of novels and short stories, including Beware the Stranger, available on Amazon.